walked by the Vendôme Hotel countless times, and driven by it as well, usually stuck in traffic. Just never occurred to me to walk inside, and I was unaware of just how beautiful the view of the Mediterranean is. When you go up to the rooftop bar, rooftop restaurant, Sydney's, and it is an expansive, uninterrupted view of the sea, which unfortunately has become an exception today. You need to be on the coast, physically, right next to the water, and elevated, if you're lucky, at one of these buildings that have recently been built on the Corniche to actually appreciate the view. This is among the worst urban planning decisions made in Beirut's history, blocking access to the sea for most of the city's residents. The St. George Hotel is just literally down the street, and the St. George, uh, the, uh, the site of Rafiq Hariri's assassination in February of 2005, and behind the St. George, of course, the Holiday Inn, unrestored, and the Phoenicia Hotel brought back to life. So the location, in a way, is quite telling of the last few decades of Beirut's history, from the Civil War, out of the Civil War, and the recent events that took place with Hadid's assassination and onwards. Now, I was actually hesitant at meeting today's guest, Amal Abdelali, at this restaurant in Le Vendôme for two reasons. The first, I mean, there's so much traffic. This is one of the most congested parts of Beirut. And all the car horns, the trucks passing by, and just the general noise. I thought we wouldn't be able to catch anything from the conversation from outside noise. But double glazed, triple glazed windows, whatever it is, I mean, it is silent. It is so quiet at this restaurant. And a unique experience to be able to see all the sea and to actually sit there in peace, relative calm. It's really out of this world. So I didn't. I was wrong about that. It's very, very quiet upstairs. Of course, the second reason is that I thought there would be too much background noise. Too many people moving in and out, coffee cups clinking and all that. So it was empty when I got there. There was no one there. As the conversation picked up, we did have people sitting next to us. There was some background noise, background chatter. I was able to filter out most of it. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Lebanon's ambassador to the UN, Amalim Dalele. And this is the Beirut Banyan. I'd like to start with the UN, and not from 2019, from late 1940s, post-World War II, early 1950s, with probably the most famous Lebanese representative to the UN, also Lebanese ambassador to the U.S., Charles Medic, and earlier today I was listening to him advising the Americans on Soviet thought and talking about Yugoslavia and Italy and Trieste land dispute, um, about Marxism, and you see these reporters praising him for his intellectual ability. Lebanon is then giving advice to the West. Lebanon is 1.5 million population. Lebanon is very new, and it's being turned to. Not only that, this ambassador helped with the Declaration of Human Rights. He made Lebanon famous right at its birth, and you are the current ambassador in the same role. And I want to ask you, do you think about Charles Medic when you think about your current post? 
is he in, is he in the back of your mind in, in any way, whether it's through those clips online or whether it's through your own position and maybe carrying that legacy? Mm-hmm. Is he in the background? Yes. In actually, what, there are way? two people. Actually, mm. there are two people in the back of my mm. mind, and I felt the weight of the responsibility mm. when I was appointed, and I went and started reading their stuff. Ghassan mm. uh, Tuwaini mm. and uh, Charles Malik, okay. because they are two ambassadors uh, who really uh, define the role of a UN ambassador. Uh, Charles Malik, at the, at the founding of the United Nations, uh, it was for me, it was unbelievable to see a Lebanese ambassador, a Lebanese person who was there at the creation at the founding of the uh, United Nations, playing a very important role. Many Arab countries did not have representatives. Yes. They had, did not have from their own countries. They had even Lebanese representing them and stuff like that. Uh, the Lebanese were working for Lebanon and working for others. So Charles, Ma- Charles Malik was a very important person because he was a philosopher. He was a, a political person. He was a, a very good writer. He was a good orator. He was a, uh, he, he's the person who believed in the human person, in yeah. humanity. And it's astounding when you see that a Lebanese man was uh, one of three representatives who wrote the Human Rights Declaration 70 years ago. 70 years ago. Look at the others. They are America and France. See, Lebanon, the small, young, the Republic Lebanon, and then you have France and America. France, America, China, if I'm not mistaken, China, China was there. But no, but the Human Rights Declaration was mostly written by the, the, the Chinese, there was a representative, but yeah. mostly the French, the Lebanese, and the Americans are the leaders who did that. But there was a, yes, there was a Chinese representative. But it's still not a bad, I mean... It's that, not bad. Even if they're five of, or yeah. four, it's not bad. He was a very exceptional man. And, you know, I was really surprised because he did not stay two years, five years at the UN. He stayed for a year. He didn't mm-hmm. stay that long, which tells you, you really don't have to stay five or ten years in a place to make yeah. a difference. If you make a difference, you make it even in half a year, and he did. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then you had Ghassan Twaini after that. Ghassan Twaini was a different time. During Charles Malik time, Lebanon did not have the conflicts that had when Ghassan Twaini was there. Yeah. Lebanon at that time was not out there during, uh, during uh, Malik, was out there in the mainstream trying to set the, put the foundations of the UN, whether it's charter, whether it's the uh, human rights declaration, whether, whatever it is. But during Ghassan Twain's time, Lebanon became uh, a, a party on the council's table yeah. as, as a party, as a victim, as, as a country that was bleeding and, and it had a cause there. So it was a different. It's a different time. It's Absolutely, a different, and it's also a different time, but not that far apart. It's not far apart. Let's see. F- how, yeah, yeah, let's see how. Yeah, like for instance, the first resolution on Lebanon at the United Nations was 1958. Right. You know, it yeah. was uh, asking basically the Syrian, the Syrians, not to interfere in Lebanon. If, I don't know if uh, you we, know that. Well, we have Fuad Shab, and then we have yeah, because after the revolution, of, exactly, in 58, yeah, they had yeah. there was a revolution. Yes. So, um, so it's a different times. But these are two amazing men who really played a very important role and left their uh, their mark uh, in uh, in New York. It's quite interesting, though. So we're let's sort of put it from the beginning to end. You have uh, 
a philosopher, but not really best known for his philosophy. Maybe he's better known as a diplomat. Absolutely. And Hassan Twaini, a journalist, first and foremost, but his legacy is also included in diplomacy. And then you have the victimization of Lebanon. Three decades earlier, Lebanon is giving advice. Three decades later, Lebanon is trying to rebuild itself. Absolutely. And then today, maybe you can tell me what, what, what is Lebanon's position today? Are we, are we, is anyone coming to us for any advice or are we in perpetual victimization uh, for the time being? No, we're not in perpetual victimization. Uh, you have to remember that in this time, this gap of years they're talking about, we had a civil war. Yeah. Lebanon went through a very, very difficult time, and many countries intervened in Lebanon. So there, the foreign intervention in the country, whether military or political, left a, a mark on the country. And I think also affected the psyche of the Lebanese, because now you talk to Lebanese and everybody says, so what is going to happen to us? What are they planning for us? The Lebanese lost this, se this sense of, like, we are the masters of our fate. We can do it. We can do this. They're always afraid or they're always concerned that somebody else is coming to have, uh, have some impact on their lives or, uh, if not invade them, interfere in their affairs and stuff like that, to the extent that they, they sometimes invite it. They don't feel that themselves they can do it. So it's always somebody from outside who can do things and not us. Although we're three decades after the civil war ended, mm -hmm. and that's twice as long as the war itself, mm -hmm. what would, why is that psyche pervasive? Because I think since the civil war, the country did not recover uh, completely from the impact of the regional and international players playing in the country. So in a way, Charles Malik was of lucky. Them, some yeah. of them, he was lucky. Yeah. Some, some of them, actually, it's, it's uh, beneficial for them mm -hmm. because sometimes the local actors, some kind of uh, use the outside actors against other actors in the country to, is, to have more power. It's a common theme I've seen in all types of issues that mm -hmm. no matter how talented the individual and you can have someone excelling at diplomacy in your position today or in, in any mm -hmm. position, that it's irrelevant because the regional factors do outweigh anything domestic or anything sovereign. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Lebanon's because, sovereignty because, is, is, the, is the issue at hand. Because, at because, because if, you, if you will it and if you believe it, it will happen. But if you say, I'm not letting anybody interfere in our internal affairs, it will happen. But unfortunately, it's not the case. People let other people interfere in their in their uh, affairs because parties in Lebanon historically they always looked for outside parties to use them against another opponent inside internally. When you're there in in New York or wherever you're traveling representing Lebanon to the UN, are you able yourself to overcome these obstacles that are probably pervasive today? Regional influences on Lebanon, and I'm sure it impacts your role too. Are you able to rebut any of this? Any yes, of, of these course, pressures? you know, because you represent the country. Mm -hmm. And the Americans have a very interesting saying. They say, our differences stop at the water's edge. Hmm. The water's edge being the, the Atlantic Atlantics. and the Pacific. Yeah. So there's no, no matter what our differences are, we mm -hmm. don't send them outside. So when you are representing a country, you have to speak in the name of the country as a whole. These actually, because you're looking at the country from... Uh, 
30,000 feet. You're not looking at the small problems that people are doing. So you don't talk about these issues. You don't you ignore them. You completely deny them, even if, if people bring them up. It's like, no, it's not this way, it's that way. And you present a united vision of the country because no matter what our differences are in the country, but there is something, a thread that ties all of us together, which is basically Lebanon, as a country, as an identity, as a place where we have a common future, no matter what our differences are. So this, this when you are outside representing the country, this is what you try to present. You don't dwell on internal domestic issues and what people are going through. Would you say, though, that's the consistent saying, even when things are terrible, that that is... The, Look, you ha- you can't lie. You right, have to sometimes yeah. be honest too. Sure, sure, so yeah. you you could say this is what's happening, mm-hmm. but this happens in every country and it yeah. will pass. Mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. to put it in perspective. You yeah. don't dwell on it. You don't whatever. But you don't lie too because you have to have credibility. Sure. Yeah. You can't say to people, oh no no, it's like it's nothing. No, there are you know we have differences, yeah. but now thankfully there are problems everywhere. So you can say you know we are part of the world and this is the world today, right. and we have problems. We have differences, but our things that are we have in common are m- much more than our differences and sure we but it's continue. always it's always i mean i sorry to keep going back to him but charles Maddock, it's just it's almost insane that uh he's explaining lebanon to the west in ways that the west is almost like we can benefit from learning from lebanon Christian, Muslim, yeah, intermingled, you, you know, have West and East and all you, that but, stuff. But you know, you have to remember, you're talking about the 50s. Exactly. And, and in the 50s, even in the West, especially America, yeah. America was new in the, in the East mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that's the time when they start taking over from the Briti- from yeah. British. Yeah. So the Americans did not know the Middle East very well. Right. So anybody who came in you, he would become, you know, the teacher, the, you know, the most important guide for them and stuff like that. Sure. Now it's completely different. Now the Americans and the world still, is different now. They still do listen in many different ways. And I think this is a good way to kind of step back a bit into your previous job. So prior to the UN, mm-hmm. you were a DC think tank, uh, well-established voice on all issues related to Lebanon. Um, did that position, in your opinion, have a more direct influence on any policy making than your current position? Or do you think that the UN is still instrumental in shifting or maybe gauging minds on how to approach Lebanon? You know, it's a completely different ball game. Mm-hmm. When you are in Washington, your interaction with, uh, with America and American government and stuff like that is very different when you're at the UN dealing with United States or any other country to try to influence their position, whatever. In Washington, it's completely different. In Washington, if you're at a think tank, uh, people listen to you and they perceive you as uh, neutral, as objective. Mm. And so you are an expert. You give them your opinion. They listen to you. When you are an ambassador for a country, people take it with a grain of salt. This is the position of the country. So in so other you're, words, you're a, a career move, an upgrade in, on the ladder, but a downgrade on influence. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> when you speak now, you speak in, a, in, in, in the voice of a country. So yeah. this, they take it as the position of the country. They listen to it and they you know, affect their position if it's li- in line with their, with their interests. Right. But if you are in a think tank, uh, people perceive you as a neutral and uh, and uh, and objective. Then they take your position without feeling that you know you are you are giving a position of somebody. So you're not uh, beholden to anybody. 
so it's more accepted. And what what exactly took you into the think tank world? Was it directly related to Rafiq Hariri's assassination? Or was that already in the background, that you were heading in that direction, that you are going to be in the sort of the research end and the sort of the no, DC I, circuit? No, I was, I was working for the prime minister at that time, for Mr. Hariri Saad. And um, I wanted a voice. I wanted to see what, you know, what what happened? I'm very curious. I wanted to see how think tanks work, and and I wanted to have an independent voice because when you are working for the prime minister, as I said to you, you're, you're presenting somebody. Yeah. So people take it as you are a party, but you know, a think tank, they take it as objective, so they listen to you better. I'd like to just gauge your mind a bit on maybe not too long ago, uh, Lebanon's current situation, vis-a-vis regional politics and primarily Iran, Saudi Arabia, and other countries as well. You as representing this tiny piece of real estate at the UN with all its problems, are you in a position to actually have those other countries take your advice? Or is that a completely lost cause, that they don't care? Whatever Lebanon says is none of our, none, none of our concern. What I'm getting at in particular is it's not too long ago that the UN helped usher in countries that were very delicate, very fragile, and they'd be neutralized. Mm-hmm. Case in point is Austria. Mm-hmm. And Austria had it, could have ended up in a much worse situation. Mm-hmm. Regional tensions, suddenly it's neutralized and there's a state treaty on neutralization. Mm-hmm. Austria is left out of the Cold War and it thrives. Mm-hmm. Lebanon it seems like it deserves that kind of treatment mm-hmm. where things are just too delicate, too tense, too violent. Mm-hmm. Could you see yourself in that kind of role, advocating neutralization of Lebanon? You cannot talk about neutralization of Lebanon. Because you can't talk about it. No, I mean, you can't mm-hmm. talk, explain why. Because mm-hmm. it has to be a policy of the country, it has to be a consensus in the country on having a neutral country. I mean, and this, there's no consensus on that. And well, when you are at the UN... Seven years ago there was, right? But now well, there is no consensus. Can I ask you, though, what, what happened to that consensus officially? That that consensus, did it last even five seconds? Or is it just... But I'm not sure there was a consensus at that time. There were there were parties in Lebanon that they wanted neutral Lebanon neutralization, and there were parties against it. Is there any maneuvering in your current role to, to at least build, build the foundation for a neutral Lebanon, or help build that? Or is that just something you, you look, cannot do? Look, when you are representing the country, mm. you have to represent the official policy of the country. The statement, the policy statement of the government is your guide. Mm-hmm. The policy statement of the country talks about the public declaration, talks about the situation policy, talks about these things. So you abide by that. You, you, you say this is our policy. So if there's any party in the country that says something different, this is not the official policy of the country. So what do you mean by neutralization of the country? What I mean is that regional that Lebanon is That Lebanon is a neutral country that doesn't uh, care about any regional issue, about the Palestinian issue, about any other Arab problem or something? What do you mean? More basic, that regional tensions do not mean regional interference in Lebanese affairs, the way Austria was treated. Austria did not have any American yeah, or Russian... Lebanon is not Austria, my dear. But, but, but that's, see, but now we're going against mm-hmm. the passion of the first UN ambassador. Mm-hmm. And we're going yeah, against... But the first uh, UN ambassador also had his detractors. People did not like his political positions, too. 
Sure. Yeah. So you but know, Lebanon has always had that's true. has always had people for this and for that. You never had a consensus in the country about anything. In I its would history. fully agree, but I think many Austrians were probably upset when suddenly Austria found itself in a situation that was neutral. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to work. Yeah, but but in the country, I don't think you'll find anybody who wants to have a neutral country now. Go and ask for anybody. Are we too late to advocate for something like that? Is that what, you're, what I'm getting? It's not, it's not about too late. People feel that we are part of a region and that you cannot just pull yourself out of the region and say we, we are neutral, we don't care, because you have, you are part of the Arab world. You are part of a region. I, I mean, I wish we are Austria. I wish we can say, okay, just leave us alone. Uh, we don't want to do anything. We don't want anybody to do anything to us. We want people to just get out of here and leave us alone. Leave alone. I don't think it's this, this simple, you know? People will not, I mean, there will not be a consensus on this. Many people would want that. And I am I'm assuming that probably the majority of the regular people on the street want that. But I don't think it will happen because politically and political uh, reality in the country is that some people are going to feel like this is, uh, uh, this is a uh, policy that's going to pull Lebanon out of its Arab roots, out of our region, out of this and that, because we have to care, we have to care who we are, and stuff like that. Not, so so much, not so much the identity of the country or the language or even the, uh, the passion or the, uh, the eagerness and willingness to defend legitimate rights, whether it's the Palestinian cause or anything like that. More to do with when a country can uh, pervert Lebanon's sovereignty to a point that Lebanon is degrading. And I mean it more in terms of arms, and I mean it in terms of violence. Not so much culture, because I don't think that's really the issue. I don't think anyone's complaining about Lebanon's culture. And I I say neutralization in in the most positive way, which is a region that has reached the worst phases no, of its history. I understand, I understand. And I think uh, I the, majority I of Lebanese, the majority of Lebanese, probably, if you talk to them on a daily, daily basis, they want to be left alone. They want to have their lives. They want to have normal life. They don't want interference in their affairs. They don't want anything. But the reality on the ground, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. And when you go, look, now we have this dissociation policy. Okay? And... Many times, I tell you the truth, actually, it's so comforting because when they say something is so uh, divisive and so uh, polarizing, you just say, I'm sorry, this is our situation policy and we cannot intervene. And it's easy to do that. But unfortunately, most of the time, we don't have the luxury to do that. That's, that's the reality of, uh, of uh, this. So unfortunately, uh, sometimes political reality pulls you in so many different directions and you cannot... Uh, it's utopia to say we're going to be neutral and because uh, we're not, as you, you said, we're not Austria. You have a different history, you have a different region, you have the different parties, groups here, you different have political culture. It's a completely different uh, country. I agree with you fully, and I think that's why Lebanon deserves it more than Austria. For Probably those we reasons. deserve it, but yeah. unfortunately, I don't think we'll get it. Hopefully, I mean, I wish we can get to this country to be left alone to build itself, to, to live, but I don't think it will happen. And I, I think of the UN today. Mm. I try not to think only about Resolution 1701 or 425 or, or the resolutions that primarily to do with war or occupation or all that. I think of the UN more in terms of states respecting their boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I 
get from you that Lebanon can only operate in the position of utmost weakness today. No, that's not true. That's not true. Why Why would Lebanon... I mean, every country from out of the 193 countries operate from the... They, they take the source, whatever it is, of their political actions and political uh, positions from their reality. And Lebanon is not that weak on the international stage. Lebanon is respected on the international stage. At the United Nations, Lebanon is very well respected. Mm. Uh, the EU uh, membership, the first person they call is us when they want to have a resolution that has to do with the human rights, that has to do with any issue, humanitarian issue or something. They know that Lebanon always takes a principled position. And there's a point of strength, not of, we- of weakness. Any on the human rights level, yeah. on the social issues, women's issues, yes. we are shining. We're with respect all- to the region, of course, we're of, looking we are, great. We, are, we, yeah. we always side with the right side. We're mm-hmm. always on the side of history and the, on these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're talking about political issues and you say the UN, you know, people say the UN and they don't understand how this works because what is the UN? The UN is the sum of the countries that are there. There are 193 countries, but the countries that really make the difference there in terms of peace and security are 15 members, the Security Council members, and then the real ones who make the decisions are the five permanent members. Not, not even the 10 who are uh, non-permanent, because any one of the five can block anything. So, so Lebanon has a peace and security issue on the Security Council. You know, we have 1701, we have the Israeli occupation, you have the border, you know, the demarcation, the delineation of the maritime border, we have these issues. Do we uh, perform from a weakness? I don't think so, we perform from a weakness. But we perform from a reality point of view. And the reality is that you have a Security Council make-up that it prevents anything from happening if it's not uh, conducive to some parties and not the others. So you are weak if you are not able to play that well for your own benefit, but you're strong if you know how to manage the negotiations in a way that you have everybody on board next to you. And thank God it's been happening that we are able to perform in a way that will keep this situation in the South and 1701 and, and all the issues of peace and security in, in, good, in good position for Lebanon's interests. But when you do have an external flow of weapons coming into Lebanon, can Lebanon even express concern about that at the UN because I know you're, you're absolutely right we are good in the things that do matter towards human rights, towards social issues, we do shine with respect to the region, absolutely and even in our worst days I think we were still ahead uh, but I'm talking more along state sovereignty and respect of borders can you imagine Lebanon today saying to another country please do not arm certain segments of Lebanese territory Lebanese groups uh, the issue of sovereignty um, is a very important issue for every country now and Lebanon is one of them but uh, there's a reality in the country there's a reality now that everybody is dealing with it in, in his own way and uh, you know uh, there's um, a very famous play by uh, Epson. It's um, Galileo. Galileo, have you ever? No, uh, Oh, this poor country doesn't have a hero. And he says, no, poor the country that needs a hero. 
mm. heroes. You need heroes everywhere in the Arab world now. Yeah. You know? You need people who stand up on principle and say, this cannot go, this cannot pass, this cannot happen. I personally yeah. think the heroes that did emerge were eliminated for the reasons that I, that I was getting at earlier, which is our sovereignty is not respected. And you can have types of attacks, whether they're invasions or whether they're assassinations, uh, because of Lebanon's inability to affect neutrality. That's a, I mean, we can, that's maybe an endless debate, and I think it'll probably keep going for decades. Yeah. Now, so I'm let's going, move some, let's, yeah, Well, let's else. go back to the beginning of your story. What took you into this world to begin with? Because you, I know you left Lebanon on mm -hmm. a scholarship, mm -hmm. and you were given every opportunity to perhaps say goodbye to Lebanon mm -hmm. and base yourself in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What got you immensed in Lebanese politics? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, I'm from Bikar, from Rauda, really left for my mother's side, and there was nobody even go to high school in that time. So I came to Beirut. My father brought me down to Beirut with all my stuff. And he said to me on the road, he said, okay, you go to Beirut, you go to university, you do whatever you want, but you do not, you do not get involved in politics. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so when is, how long ago was this? Just, you're, oh you're my 25, God. 19, so yeah, that was Yeah, I was 1981. 81. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so during the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came to during the Civil War here. You came to Beirut. Mm-hmm. And I stayed in Beirut. At, uh, I lived at in Verdun Street with the nuns, French nuns. Oh, wow. The Dominican uh, nuns. Because he would not let me stay in an apartment. I mean, good girls right. don't stay in apartments. But he's uh, insisting no politics. No politics. For good reason. No. Six years of a civil war. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and I went and studied journalism. Oh, <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, <laughs> like, close enough. No politics. <laughs> uh, and so I was working here as uh, I, I was in a university. And then... By chance, I went to Anahar to interview somebody in Anahar as a graduate from the university, our university, the, the communications department. Now, Anahar back then, which part of Beirut was Anahar? Uh, Hamra. In Hamra. So you were That's able Anahar. to move around West yeah. Beirut yeah, during West the Beirut. civil war. Yeah, yeah, you can. You okay. can. Yes. So I um, interviewed them, and they offered me a job to work in, in the uh, student affairs section. So I was working covering student affairs in the university. Mm -hmm. And then the Israeli invasion came. Oh, so you won in year, 82. 1983. So yeah. one year later. Yeah. And you're covering. I, the I was covering. Uh, yeah. One year later, after uh, covering students, the invasion happened, and then the men in the in the newspaper could not go out to the field. So they sent us, the girls, sent me to the Arab University where Arafat was and all the PLO and yeah. and all over West Beirut. I was covering their news because we could go out. You know. But uh, after the war finished, Israeli invasion finished, uh, suddenly they want us to go back to the student section. And the people who were in the political have to go and resume their jobs. I'm guessing that's impossible. It was difficult because yeah. I said to them, we are not uh, a chair, uh, leg of a chair right. that you can put it on and off. We are, and you you're know. suddenly a war correspondent within yeah, your, own, exactly. your own city. Exactly. We, you, you put your life in danger yeah. also because it was very scary. You know, it was covering the invasion. It was not easy. You stayed in Beirut stayed during in Beirut. the shelling, during the siege, mm -hmm. covering mm -hmm. yeah, the war. I was under siege and uh, one day actually I read in the newspapers that uh, a plane hit a, cars, a convoy of cars and they put names of people and it was similar to uh, my pa parents, my father's name. 
And I thought my family was killed. And for a month, I did not know if they were still alive. It was very hard. And then the siege was lifted, and then I got out. And we went through Israeli checkpoints to Bika. It took us like seven hours to make it to Bika because of the checkpoints. Yeah, so it was a very difficult time. But that's that's your first intimate experience with with politics. Yes, in its absolutely. Most, in its cruelest absolutely. form. I went to the camps. I went to, after the massacre. But thank God they will not let me in. I just entered, I was in the entrance and the Lebanese army will not uh, let us in. Oh, it was the Lebanese army? There was there were some military people on the, I don't know if it was the UN or the, somebody will not let us in. I don't remember. It's been a long time. So I left. And after we saw the pictures of what happened, I was so thankful I did not get in. I want to cover it. <laughs> anyway, so after the invasion, I didn't want to stay in Lebanon. I just like, I want to stay. I went to Beirut, to AUB for like uh, semester, I think two semesters, and then I left in the 83, I left to, uh, to America. Well, what were you studying? In, uh, at the American University of Political Science. So, oh, so the, all the advice thrown out the window, goodbye. Absolutely. It's, it's quite interesting, you're studying politics and you're covering war at home. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. Not, you're not learning this from some no. ivory tower in no. New England, Absolutely. you're doing it here. Yeah. And then you leave. <laughs> I got uh, a scholarship from the Lebanese University, yeah. and uh, I left. I went to American uh, American uh, embassy. It was still on the Corniche. I got... Uh, She's not far away from us here. Yeah, yeah. I, I got uh, the visa. After two weeks, the embassy was bom- bombed. And I went and covered the bombing of the embassy oh, wow. on, the, on the Corniche. It was very hard to go there and see it after, you know, you were there a week before, two weeks before, and then it was bombed in 83. So you've been co- covering torment mm-hmm. in Beirut for now nearly four decades yeah. whether you're here or abroad you're yeah, so absolutely. wow so this starts in its cruelest form Beirut is completely at war anarchy is Israeli invasion especially, and all. especially after doing the invasion it was yeah. unbelievable and you managed to get the visa the embassy is blown up you're covering the explosion but the visa still gets you to I America I went to America I went to Syracuse I went to Syracuse New York. now I cannot imagine a complete opposite place from Beirut than Syracuse. Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a place where six months of snow, a very quiet, small town, nothing happens and there. You're, but you're not at home. No. Did, 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 when was the next time you'd return to Lebanon? Oh, I said five years without coming back to Lebanon because uh, the economy collapsed in 86. Yes. My, uh, the pound collapsed. And so my whole scholarship for the whole year was $800. So I could not... I could not stay in Syracuse. I could not uh, pay for my tuition, whatever. So I uh, could not come home because I had no money. And I remember I sent a letter to my parents through the Red Cross because there were no cell phones, no phones. Everything was cut off. Lebanon was really cut off in the 80s. So uh, uh, I still have the letter I sent to my parents. And uh, I have letters from my parents also. They sent it to me in the 80s. Uh, So I moved to Washington from Syracuse because I couldn't continue there without money. And uh, in Washington, I started working as a journalist and uh, but then, put myself so, in Maryland. But what took you into the world of Rafiq Hariri and post-war reconstruction? How did you enter that? Uh, I didn't know Rafiq Hariri. I knew Saad Hariri. 
Hadid Saad was a student in New York in uh, Washington and I was a student there so I oh, used to so see him sometimes yeah the friendship is from yeah I knew Saad, I knew him then I see I knew him very I knew him well and yeah. used to hi, say hi whenever they are I, mean, I didn't hang out with them because we're a different uh, age and different he was group, a Georgetown but, student but, yeah he was yeah. Georgetown mm-hmm. and but I used to see him in public places and restaurants whatever mm-hmm. and then um, one day uh, Rafiq Hari went to visit and uh, Saad was there so um, I said hi to him uh, and that was it. He didn't remember me. But then one other uh, trip he went, uh, to, he had a press conference at the National Press Building. So I went to the press conference, and uh, he said, when you come to Lebanon, visit us. So I said, okay. I was so happy. The prime minister asked you as a journalist to visit him, you know. So I came to visit him, and he offered me a job. Oh, wow. So yeah. So that... This, I see. This is quite nice. So you actually, this is all by chance. By chance. You're, I didn't. I didn't know him at all. And you were given the job. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the job is still America based. No, it's he here. asked me to come here. So you and you were you were happy to come back. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to come back. Didn't want to. But there was something strong, stronger than you. It pulled you, and I came. What was it to you though? Because this pull. I don't know. This pull, which is not very easy to explain. Mm-hmm. I think my father and many people like him and you had that urge to return mm-hmm. in the 1990s, even when things were not settled. I mean, Lebanon is under Syrian rule or indirect rule. Lebanon is still in shatters. And you have a voice with a lot of promise, Rafi Hariri, saying things that are quite tempting and you're, it's almost seductive. Were you, were, you, were you taken from that and said, I believe what he's what I believe in this man and therefore I'm ready to give Lebanon another try and what I'm getting at is without Rafi Hariri without that job offer I wouldn't have come back you wouldn't have come back no yeah no, no but because I felt this is my best chance to go home if I want to go home this is the best way to go to go and be part of something because important you'd be fixing yeah you'd yeah. be part of something important something you're helping uh, the country you are playing an important role you are uh, you are rebuilding the country, you know? It's important to be part of this. I felt like it's history and you'll be part of it. It's important. And he was bigger than life, you know? So it was like, oh my God, you're going to work for Rafiq Hadi? Oh my God, it was so big at that time. And it, it did pull back a lot of people yeah. that we both know. Yeah. yeah, because he gave you hope, you know? Yeah. He gave you hope that this is going to be the most amazing ride of your life, you know? Yeah. To be able to play a role in your country, but you do it the highest level with the best person in the world and stuff like that you know so you, you felt you're, you're so contributing you're contributing with him in a way by your side supporting you but then when you came back I'm guessing you saw his role diminished in front of you and this is when there was a lot of pressure on him domestically and he was forced to resign and then he was put in a difficult place which ultimately ended up with his assassination but you stayed and you stayed and you were committed. What, in those years, what was the driving force? Was it, I'm going to push against all the odds and make sure that this man succeeds? Or was it, I'm here now, I will not leave again, that's it, my calling, and I, no matter what happens, I belong to Lebanon? No, it was because of him. Him. You stayed for him, because it was so unfair what happened to him, it was a challenge and uh, you wanted to be able to help. You yeah. wanted to stay and you wanted to make sure that he was, it was uh, he, something wrong, I mean, he was wronged. 
and you want to help him correct that wrong because he's the right person for the country and they want to derail the country from that path and you want to help, you want to be part of that. So yeah. you stay. You stay. Yeah, and he asked me to stay because I, I offered him that I would leave. Right. And he said, I wanted to stay and be part of the family and whatever happens, you know, will be here. And so I stayed. And then He reassured me. He reassured you, but then you had to go again. After he died. Yeah. After he died, I lost hope. Yeah. You know, I felt like if this is a, this man, with all his power, with all his connections, with all his money, with everything he had and his personality and everything could not make a change in this country, nothing will. That's why, how I felt exactly at that time. I think that shock of what happened to him is what drove Lebanese really to the br- breaking point because no one saw this happening. Eight years later, clearly not at the same level and a very different man, but the, the reaction to my father's assassination I think was so flickering that it almost, to, I mean, and I know there's a very different weight, it's a very different... No, no, I but it's, it's quite amazing that in eight years, the resurgence can also fade very quickly. And it is also quite telling that there have been no assassinations since, which to me means that there is a, a sad ending to this story. And do you, do you find today Lebanon entering a perhaps period of relative calm, given what's happening in Syria now? Or do you see Lebanon entering a very unstable future. How do you see? I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see conflict uh, on the scale that we saw any time in our future, in our history before. Um, Because I think the Lebanese learned a big lesson from their history, and I don't think they're going to repeat it again. Even if you see small, you know, pulling and pushing here and there and political gridlock and stuff like that, I don't see a civil war. The other thing is, for civil wars to happen, you need money. There's no money to fund the violence. So here's the nice uh, consequence of a broke country with a failing economy. Not enough money to fund war. No, 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 no. Not the money inside the country. Mm. You know, when the civil war happened, many regional countries were pouring money in weapons in Lebanon to fight. People have their own wars now in the region. Everybody has his own problem. Nobody's now thinking about Lebanon and what's going to happen on Lebanon and stuff like that. I see sometimes quite interesting events happening. You have a civil marriage that we both attended, a ceremony, mm-hmm. at Sursa Palace mm-hmm. not too long ago. And we saw an attempt, mm-hmm. a symbolic attempt, at bringing a civil marriage to life in Lebanon. Of course, we're talking in 2019 about something simple, mm-hmm. a civil marriage signing mm-hmm. and registration. I think on the smallest scale, that is too difficult. On the large scale, it's multiple times harder to fix things. Mm-hmm. I've seen Lebanon degrade over the last few years, and I'm a post-war generation. You're a little older than me. You saw, you saw some of the good years as, a, as maybe in your youth, and then you saw the country collapse and maybe rebuild itself to a certain point. But I can't see my kids having a better future here than I have today. And I find that very distressing, very, very, uh, it's not just sad, it's, it's, it's that you, you're almost forced to face the fact that this country doesn't improve over time. No matter who's trying, 
no matter who the heroes are at any given mm. point. Um, and the, the most talented do leave. Mm. Lebanon has the most successful engineers, I think, in the region, and we have probably the worst transportation system possible. We have talented diplomats, and we have Look, all these. You know, my niece just got married Saturday mm. to a Maronite. She did civil, ma- civil marriage in Cyprus, but she went to church and she had the church because yeah. he, his family wants a church, so we did it. So I have hope for the new generation. I think the new generation is really amazing in terms of rejecting all these old rules and stuff like that. I think things will change with time. It's not going to stay the same. The new generation is, is going in the right direction. The problem is when you have a political system based on sectarian basis, when you have that tying you down to all these old rules, you, nothing will change. So, because sectarian systems produce sectarian wars, you know, and they don't build real countries. So, this some, somehow, maybe the new generation one day will decide that we need to have something different. We need to live by different rules. We need to look at human beings only as human beings, regardless of their race or color or religion or sect or whatever persuasion they have. So I think this is our our only hope. What would you tell your successor when you leave the UN? What would you tell the next Lebanese ambassador? And what would your advice be for the future of diplomacy with Lebanon and the UN? You have to plan for Lebanon at the UN 10, 15 years, 20 years from now, because we have 193 countries. If you don't plan what uh, positions Lebanon should be in, what boards we we should be on, uh, when we should be on the Security Council, when we should have the presidency of the of the uh, general assembly and stuff like that these don't happen overnight you have to put the requests 20 30 years before so if you are there don't think of your day think of 20 years from now what lebanon needs and put it there then you should write this book soon so mm-hmm. that we can have a template to use two decades from now <laughs> the sun's down thank amal you. thank you thank you i appreciate thank you very it. much thank, thank you, you. of Austria may be a bit far-fetched for for Lebanon, but it's just really to show that uh, there are instances when regional conflict can be sort of allayed, where countries can thrive even when there's extreme uh, conflict uh, nearby. So we didn't uh, come to an agreement there, but uh, there was another issue that Emma brought up, which I thought was interesting, that she puts the, uh, the burden on sectarianism, a less religious state environment where people are not uh, registered as confessions or religions, where you're actually just a Lebanese citizen, is something that is very much desired among most Lebanese I know. The next episode will be with Nadim Shahedi, a well-renowned Lebanese historian. Uh, He's the current president of Lebanese American University, New York campus. And Nadim Shahadi does not think of sectarianism as a bad word. He actually thinks of secularism 
as more dangerous to Lebanon than sectarianism. So it's not a rebuttal per se against Ahmed Mdalade, but it's maybe a defense of the old power-sharing uh, model that Lebanon inherited from Ottoman years, and the only country in the Middle East that still retains it, a power-sharing among confessions. And Nadim, is, uh, he's a champion of that. And uh, he doesn't think that sectarianism is uh, a problem for Lebanon. On the contrary, it's the way Lebanon should be, and the region should adopt that model as opposed to reject it. So we jump into how this whole thing started, what we inherited, and the benefits of that system, and where the real problems are today. We had Amal Mdalili in Beirut talking about the UN in New York. Next episode will be in New York, at LAU's New York campus, with Nadim Shahedi. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.